Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. He makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to what this perfection truly is. And as you speak to us, Lord, we pray that we would listen. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I preached a sermon uh, a couple years ago during Lent that was called Love Your Neighbor. So you might think of this as a companion piece. We had Love Your Neighbor. Now we have Love Your Enemy. And uh, this one's definitely the hard one in comparison. And Love Your Neighbor, that's pretty innocuous, maybe the most uncontroversial sentiment that you will find in the Christian church, except that it just so happens that that earlier sermon, I preached it in March of 2020. It was preached in our very first uh, live stream sermon after things began to shut down right at the beginning of the pandemic. Now, you remember the story in Luke 10 that gives rise to the teaching on loving your neighbor. It's the story where Jesus tells the, the story of the Good Samaritan. And the question at the heart of it is, who is my neighbor? And you can remember Jesus when he answers the question, who is my neighbor? He says, the one who agrees with me on Facebook. You're not laughing. Is it too soon? Is it too soon to joke about these things? I can add laughter when I upload the sermon. That's fine. Jesus doesn't actually say that. He doesn't say that's who your neighbor is. And yet, ironically, we've lived the last couple of years as if that is what he taught. That's the way that we've loved our neighbor. Two years after that sermon, if we were to get a report card on how we've done on loving our neighbors, well, let's just say probably none of us would get an A. But... Let's do a little thought experiment. I want to imagine for a moment that we live in a parallel universe, an alternate timeline in which we as Christians did the last two years pretty much perfectly. We ran the race. We faced the test of the last two years. And if there was one thing that everybody could say is that we loved our neighbors, that everybody knows those must be Christians because of the love that they have for one another. Imagine that over the last two years, we had demonstrated an unprecedented unity, a bottomless compassion for other people. Imagine that we had set an example for the world of how to live in harmony, that people pointed to and said, that's a success story. Imagine taking that track record and presenting that to Jesus and being able to say, look, we did it. You said love your neighbor, and we did. 
We loved our neighbors. It wasn't easy because we didn't always see eye to eye with our neighbors. But even when we differed from one another, we led with love. We managed to put the concerns of others ahead of our own concerns, Lord. Look, we loved our neighbors. Again, that's an alternate timeline. We don't live in that world. But suppose we did and we went to Jesus and we presented our case. Imagine Jesus' response. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We look back and imagine what it would have taken to love our neighbors well in a way that we could be proud of. And we look back at that as an accomplishment. But if you take that accomplishment and you lay it at the feet of Jesus, it's, it's the thesis that he then overturns in our text. All we would have done if we had lived the last two years in an ideal way is loved our neighbors and hated our enemies. Everybody does that, Jesus says. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. If you listen to those words and you think about what that means, you might feel within yourself this urge. You might hear inside your head this little voice saying, should we just give up right now? Because if we can't love our neighbors, how in the world can we love our enemies? If getting the loving your neighbor badge proved so difficult, we don't have any option, any hope of getting the Loving Your Enemy Award. But no, let's not give up. Even though it seems impossible, let's not give up. Instead, let's do this. Let's trust. Let's trust that there is a power from God that can teach those of us who can barely love our neighbors how we can start loving our enemies too. And if we can do that, there's two things that I want us to look at. First, we're going to look at how to love your enemies, and then we're going to look at why to love your enemies. And when it comes to application, what Jesus says about how to love your enemies might seem a little thin. He gives us just one thing, just one teaching on how to do this. He says, pray for those who persecute you. But that one thing that he says is actually huge. I know that in our world, there's a lot of skepticism about prayer, about the power of prayer. But here's the truth about prayer. God works through prayer to change the world, starting with the heart of the one who prays. Prayer is the means that God uses to change the world around us, but he begins by using it to change us. You cannot love your enemy without praying for your enemy. But if you begin to pray for your enemy, God will start showing you how to love him. So although Jesus gives us simple words, those words are profound. Whenever people ask me for advice on how to live the Christian life, uh, how to navigate the hard stuff, and, and there are people in this room who've asked me those very questions, I always feel bad for you. If you're coming to me and asking for advice, you must be desperate. But fortunately, I don't recommend my own wisdom. I have the wisdom of another that I can refer you to. And some of you 
will recognize the book I'm about to mention. It's Richard Baxter's book, The Christian Directory. This is a book that is huge. It's, it's a monumental book. Richard Baxter, who was this Puritan pastor of the late 1600s, wrote a kind of directory answering all of the practical questions that we might have about, about really every aspect of Christian life. Uh, Tim Keller blurbed the book. I have the hardcover, and, and Tim Keller's blurb is on the front. He says, it's the best book of Christian counseling ever written. And it's from so long ago that they referred to him as Dr. Timothy Keller, like you might not know, and you might need to have the doctor in front so that you will be suitably impressed. But if you read Baxter, you will be impressed because he has a way of unpacking these difficult teachings. I'm not going to give you pure Baxter. I'm going to give you a summary of a section of his book that he devotes to the topic of loving your enemies and how to do it. First, he starts by clarifying who your enemies are, because a lot of times we think of people as enemies and they're really not our enemies. He says your enemies are the people who actually hate you and want to harm you. So don't think that Jesus is saying love the people who just don't play along. Love the people who aren't really your people. He's saying love the people who hate you. Love the people who actually want to hurt you. Because if you can love them, then you can love anyone. If you stop and think about that for just a moment, what kind of love could love those who hate me? Like what kind of love would I have to have to love people who want to hurt me? If you imagine being loving like that and how that love might look in every circumstance, it's a kind of unimaginably glorious love if it can do all of that. Baxter counsels us when we look at our enemies to love the good that is in them, to remember that they're made in the image of God, that because of that, despite their their hatred towards you, they have some good in them, and you can love that at least. You can desire for your enemy the same happiness that you would want for yourself or for any human being. He says you should pray for their repentance. You should pray for your enemies to be reconciled to God. And this isn't a hopeless prayer because the Bible gives us examples of people who were enemies who became friends. Saul, for example, who held the cloaks at the stoning of Stephen, later on became Paul and and went on to endure stoning himself for the sake of Christ. So this kind of prayer is a prayer that is availing. What I appreciate about Baxter, though, is that he doesn't just give you the the good advice, he also anticipates your objections and tries to answer them. And I think when it comes to trying to love our enemies, there are a lot of obvious objections that come up. And, And he does a good job pointing out a couple of things. He says, you can love your enemy and still carry yourself warily for your own preservation. In other words, he's not saying Jesus wants you to 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 make yourself a target. Jesus wants you to essentially seek out abuse in life. Whenever you see people who hate you, go to those people so that they can hurt you. That's what Jesus wants. He says, no, it's okay to be wary. It's okay to be on your guard and yet still to strive to love. He says, such ways of kindness must be chosen as do most engage an enemy to returns of kindness without giving him ability or opportunity to do mischief in case he prove implacable. You may show him kindness without putting a sword into his hand. 
In other words, again, you don't have to be an idiot. You don't have to be a chump. You don't have to turn a blind eye to the fact that people are malevolent and cruel. You can be wise in the way that you express and show your love and still strive to show love. Don't let the fact that you can't trust people let you off the hook for having to love them. That's the point. There is a way to love your enemy that, that doesn't put a sword in his hand. He says, you're not bound to love an enemy as a friend, but as a man so qualified as he is, nor to love a wicked man who is an enemy to godliness as if he were a godly man, but only as one that is capable of being godly. This precept of loving enemies was never intended for the leveling all men in our love. In other words, it's not a blindness. Love doesn't turn a blind eye to an enemy's sin or hatred. Love is clear-eyed, but despite seeing clearly, still seeks to love. And doesn't use the fact that they can see what's wrong as an excuse not to love. As an excuse to answer evil with evil. In other words, don't let the objections stand in the way. They're real, and you do have to take into account these factors. And yet, pray for your enemy and ask God to show you how to love him rightly. There's more application that Jesus gives, not here but elsewhere. If we look in Luke 6, which is a kind of parallel passage to the one that we're looking at, he gives some other things that we can do. He says, do good to those who hate you in Luke 6, verse 27. And then in the next verse, 28, he says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. We saw last week Paul's exposition on the same theme in Romans 12. If you remember that, he gave us some insight here in Romans uh 12, he's actually quoting from Proverbs 25, verse 21. He says, if your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. So that's another way of loving your enemy, by providing for his hunger. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. In other words, apply the golden rule even to your enemies. Treat your enemy as you yourself would want to be treated. And the thing is, if you do that for your enemies, who won't you do it for? If you can apply the golden rule to your enemies, who wouldn't you apply it to? Who wouldn't you treat in this way? There's a principle here that should be coming to the surface. Those who have been forgiven no longer treat others according to their just deserts. Those who have been forgiven no longer treat people according to what they deserve. Instead, we model how we treat others, on how we've been treated by God. We model the way we treat others on how we've been treated by God. And if you do that, if you put that into practice, you blur the lines between loving your brother, your neighbor, and loving your enemy. In the same way that Joseph, at the end of the book of Genesis, had a set of brothers who had made themselves his enemy, and yet he insisted still on treating them as brothers. We too are called by Christ to strive to treat our enemies as if they were our brothers. That's the how. But Jesus, as I said, doesn't spend a lot of time in the how. 
He spends most of his time on the why, giving us the rationale for why we should love our neighbors. Now, based on what we've seen so far, the why may seem obvious. The why we should love our neighbors is is surely forgiveness. We've been forgiven, so we must forgive our enemies. But if you go back to the text and you look at how Jesus answers the question, that's not what he says. Jesus doesn't say, the reason that you should love your enemies is because you've been forgiven, so you need to treat them the way you've been treated. That's true. It's taught elsewhere. But here, the rationale that Jesus gives is a little bit different and higher. He says, you must treat your enemies the way God treats his enemies. Treat your enemies the way God treats his enemies. Jesus says, for he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. And you can imagine it working differently. Maybe it would if you were God. When people offended you, when they did bad things, it would start raining on them and they would get wet. But if people were good, the sun would shine on them all the time. And we could tell who the good people were and the bad people, who the just and the unjust, based on who it was raining on and who was getting sun. But that's not how God operates. The rain rains on everyone, and the sun shines on everyone, the just and the unjust alike. And that reveals something about the character of God, specifically the love of God. Just as his forgiveness of us demonstrates what we could say is his saving grace, the way he treats his enemies is evidence of a common grace that is at work in the world. God saves his people but he is good to everybody. He demonstrates love to all human beings through the work of his hands, through the way that the world that he has created works. Jesus makes this clear again in Luke 6 in the parallel. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your father is merciful. So simply put, loving our enemies is a way of imitating the father. It's a way of being like God. Loving our enemies testifies to God's love. It glorifies God's love for us. When I love my enemies, I give glory to the God who loved me when I was his enemy. So if the question is, why should I love my enemies? then the answer is because your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And loving your enemies is a way to do that. It is a way to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. At the end of our passage, Jesus says those uh, blood-curdling words, you must be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. And in doing that, he states up front something that has been kind of underneath the surface throughout this chapter. We've talked about it before. It's the way in which Jesus is pressing the law upon us, uh, in Paul's words, to increase the trespass. Jesus teaches the law in such a way that nobody can hear and thinks he's keeping the law. Like nobody who hears Jesus talk about the law goes away feeling, I'm okay, I'm, I'm good, I'm righteous. Everyone comes under condemnation under conviction. And certainly that's true with this final statement. Jesus is basically saying, like, everybody, 
loves their neighbor, you must love your enemy because you must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. And you're like, Jesus, you have unrealistic expectations. But no, what Jesus is doing is he's revealing to us how high the standard of righteousness actually is. Right? The way that people had interpreted the law basically made it possible for you to acknowledge on the one hand, hey, nobody's perfect, but on the other hand, to believe that you were keeping the law. It's a funny thing. Nobody thought, the Pharisees didn't think they were perfect. They knew they weren't perfect, but they did think they were keeping the law. You see, that that problem is the problem that Jesus is pointing to. Jesus says, that's not good enough. You must be perfect. The law expects perfect righteousness, not good enough righteousness. Now, if you hear those words of Jesus, you must be perfect, and you feel some anxiety, and and they worry you, it's a good indicator that maybe you have been assuming that you can be righteous in the eyes of God without being perfect, that you might be good enough in God's accounting, that it might be okay to just be as good as you are, and more might not be required by the law. It might be an indicator that you're satisfied with where you're at and believe that God must be satisfied with you too. But what Jesus is telling us here is that's not the case. God, expressing his will through the law, expects perfect righteousness, is not satisfied with anything less than perfect righteousness. That's increasing the trespass. But Jesus is doing more than just increasing the trespass. He's also calling us to imitate God's love. To imitate God's love. To love the way that God loves. To love other people. To love even our enemies the way that God loves his enemies. Because it's that love that leads to the forgiveness that makes it possible for us to be perfect in the eyes of the Father, not through our works, not through our law-keeping, but through Christ's righteousness given to us. Baxter says, Jesus Christ was incarnate to set us a pattern, especially of this virtue. He sought the salvation of his enemies. He went up and down doing good among them. He died for his enemies. He prays for them, even in his sufferings on the cross. He wept over them when he foresaw their ruin. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. This is the pattern we must imitate. He says to be God's enemies is to be wicked and unlovely. So that in such God could see nothing amiable but our nature and those poor remainders of virtue in it. And our capacity of being made better by his grace. And yet then he loved us. We were his enemies. We were set against him, and when we were his enemies, he died for us. He loved us, and he gave himself for us when we were enemies. And now he says to us, love your enemies, as I have loved you. Now you hear that teaching, love your enemy, and it does sound like a hard teaching, a difficult thing to do, maybe the worst task that you've been called to. When you think about who your enemies are, when you think about what the people who hate you have done to you, and then Jesus says, love them, that may seem like the most difficult thing that you will be called to in the life of faith. 
But what if it's just the opposite? What if it's not some sort of difficult task that's been set for us? What if instead loving your enemy is the secret weapon in the work of sanctification? What if the act of striving to love your enemy is the greatest teacher of how to love that exists for us? What if striving to love your enemy is the means of drawing as close, as near to Christ as you can? Because in the experience of loving your enemy, you're doing something that Christ does perfectly. And you participate in his love when you love your enemies. If your cry genuinely is, I want to follow Jesus, I want to draw near to him, then the Spirit is answering you here in this text. The Spirit is saying, love your enemies the way God loves his, and you will draw near to him, and you will be like him. If you want to follow Jesus, then love your enemy. Don't just love your enemy. Thank God for your enemy who's been given to you as a gift to teach you how to love all things well. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.